Steve. Richie. I had a dream about you last night. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it's it's nothing weird. It was just sex. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I had a dream last night. I was so I was in Brighton for the weekend, a little weekend getaway, and I just got back from it. And we were scheduled to record when I, as soon as I came back, that was a standing thing we had. And I guess that was fresh in my mind for the whole weekend because when I went to sleep in our lovely, charming little beachside Airbnb, which your was, girlfriend. With my, with my girlfriend, a romantic I, getaway. It would romantic to get away, who I love dearly. Um, you, you did take her to Brighton. Let's just. say. <laughs> I've taken her to more romantic places. Okay, God, <laughs> Brighton's lovely. But anyway, yeah, I had dreams of you. Now I'll preface this by saying I hate it when people talk about their dreams. Yeah, but I think this is this is this actually bears repeating because in my dream I was still in Brighton, like I was just living the day I had just experienced. But you were following me around you were like in the distance you were like our waiter in the restaurant but you were wearing a fake mustache on top of your own face your own facial hair okay <laughs> we were walking through a park and you had a newspaper covering your face and you would hold it down and i'd look at you and you'd push it back up <laughs> you were like wearing a mascot's outfit handing out flyers but i could see your face through the hole in the mask was it like a hot dog or something i, I can't even remember. i think it was a pineapple <laughs> I can't even imagine what I was advertising in a pineapple. <laughs> but you were there and I'd keep going, Steve, I can see you. And then you just like run Waddle, away. I'd waddle away in my pineapple outfit. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know why. Like, I don't, I still don't know why. I don't know what your rationale was for Dream Steve following me around. But anyway, I woke up in the middle of the night and I was in that kind of, that really fuzzy in-between state between wake and sleep where you're not fully sure what reality is or that kind of thing. And uh, I was mad at you. I was so mad at you. <laughs> like I was on, in my dream message. I was like, oh, fuck, you're ruining my weekend, Steve. Like in my mind, I had woken up and just like remembered the day that I came before where you were following me around, <laughs> ruining my weekend. Is that why you were so pissy with me before we started recording? Yeah, it's, it's, I'm still not over it. And I expect I, now I want you to apologize. Here, just take this leaflet for my new pineapple pineapple <laughs> Steve, guess who else likes pineapples, I assume? Um, Michael D. Higgins. <laughs> Michael, he's, he is a fiend for prickly fruit. No, uh, pirates, I would assume, like pineapples. Because I... Would I help with scurvy? Pineapples um, and vitamin C. Y- yeah, I guess there's probably vitamin C. Anyway, but you're probably wondering why I've bring I br- I've brought up pirates into this perfectly seamless segue. I yes, I'm I'm definitely wondering why and every, everyone else is too who have downloaded this episode called What Am Pirates. Yeah, well it turns out and I didn't know this, but we recently learned that pirates were actually quite political and they were quite progressive and they've actually have a lot to do with, with politics. Thank you very much. You're welcome. If you're anything like like what we were up until recently enough, you assume like your perceptions of pirates are based on, you know, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies or Treasure Island. Muppets Treasure Island, that's a very... Did you know Hans Zimmer did music from Muppets Treasure Island? Oh, no wonder. It's so good. Yeah, it's so good. That's a great movie. Yeah, how do you um, get from Hans Zimmer, Muppets Treasure Island to the Inception soundtrack? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great career. Yeah, he's done a lot of stuff. Muppets Christmas Carol. Muppets Christmas Carol. <laughs> a lot of Muppet-based productions. Uh, pineapples. We're talking about Pineapples. <laughs> But yeah, most people's perceptions are wrapped up in silly caricatures or like romantic rogues. And there are elements of truth to those stereotypes, but there's a bunch of stuff that people don't realize. Like, for example, they were hugely democratic. Yes. Everyone on the ship had an equal vote. Everyone from the captain all the way down to the boy who empties the pee buckets. Regardless of I your race, your creed, your gender, your, your gender even, number yeah, of like limbs, it doesn't matter. Y- I, I, it doesn't matter at all. They were not ableist. They were not sexist. They were none of those things. They couldn't. They couldn't afford to be because they were such a lean, a lean team. Um, they had a system of dual governance. So the yeah. captain was in charge of strategy, and the quartermaster was in charge of culture, and the two of them helped run the ship together. You sound like that you have recently spoken to somebody who knows an awful lot about this. 
You and Steve, would you believe I haven't? This is all my own independent research. <laughs> I've written a book called Be More Pirate. No, no. Well, you could take credit because uh, it's so well designed that it's kind of hard to find out who did write it. Absolutely, and we do talk about that in the um in in the episode. But no, we we interviewed uh, the wonderful Mr. Sam Conifayande, who wrote a book called Be More Pirate. Uh, which is all about breaking down these preconceived notions of what pirates are, highlighting how rebellious and progressive they were, and then taking those learnings and applying them how they can be used today. And before we actually get into the interview now, it's worth pointing out that for today only, which is what, Tuesday the 26th of June? Yeah, Tuesday the 26th of June. uh, The book will be 99p on Kindle. And very good deal. A, very good a bloody, deal. A bloody steal, some might say. You might feel like you're a pirate yourself. They didn't actually say you are. Oh. What? Okay, yeah. So listen, um, trust us. It's a good book. Buy it. But then you also don't have to trust us just because we also have an interview which will start. No. 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 Yeah. Speaking of alcohol consumption, last night we went out for a few drinks while we were preparing for the episode. And looking at my notes this morning, I have two possible ways of introducing you. Excellent. Let's go with the drunker ones. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah. The two options are Sam Conniff, pioneer of the pirate perspective, <laughs> or putting the R in nonfiction author. Oh, Jesus. We know Christ. what you're thinking. Yeah. yeah, we know what you're thinking. Yeah. Can I have both? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was actually thinking, can I get the business card made? The second author. one. Just thinking, how long does the business card need to be? <laughs> Nothing tells you more about an author who can't spell author. <laughs> I've never yeah, seen yeah. a three meter business card before with so many R's all the way out there. <laughs> the one I find is that you rarely find an entrepreneur who can spell entrepreneur. There's a distinctly high level of dyslexia amongst entrepreneurs, mm. and somebody. Some fucker chose the most complicated yeah. word. <laughs> well, I know it starts with an O, but yeah. after <laughs> I think that myself, like the word for lisp can't be pronounced by people with, with the lisp. Yeah, and like the word abbreviate is way too long. <laughs> English is a deeply flawed language. <laughs> well, I, that, but all of this just sounds like there's a cheeky, you know, there's like a secret board yeah. <laughs> somewhere. Well, it's, yeah, it's further evidence of, of the Illuminati. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Having a lot confirmed. Well, definitely, like the... Um, uh, the acronym for the body of plastic surgeons is BAPS. No <laughs> way. The British Association of Plastic Surgeons. So they, they get more fun and ironic in, in their later stages. Okay. Yeah, 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 exactly. They were sat, you know, they were at a conference at the future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what should we call ourselves? They just start off with a list of these words and go, okay, what, what words can we plug in yeah. to acronize this? Yeah. Yeah, actually, whichever one of them's face when they work that. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> lads, lads, BAPS. <laughs> We had a college in Dublin that was called Tits and it was one of the best places to go, Tala IT. Yeah. But they actually decided that they couldn't take it anymore. They wanted to call it ITT and they made they had an official campaign to change it. But it's so depressing. Did, I think I think they're they're uh, they should have just the, stuck the with tits. numbers dropped. Yeah. Drastically. I mean that's why I left and went to DCU. Yeah, I was a tit for life, but then no, they got rid of it, so you know. I'm not that's, that's so funny. <laughs> Whoever it was that decided well we can't have it anymore, they should yeah. they, they should be first against the wall. Precisely, yeah. Come on. <laughs> off the gangplank that's the metaphor we have to use for this conversation off the plank yeah but off the side of the plank a plank that's that's a misconception they never actually had I'm planks I'm afraid so just as they didn't really go around saying "r." did they just say "r" either the most uh, thoughtful um, advice I've had on this is that they're much more kind of Shakespearean so it's, it's of a similar kind of time frame so when you see Shakespeare done in what's supposed to be a reasonable vernacular so it's a, it's a hint Cockney, yeah. So a bit, you know, it's got a right little, you know. Yeah. I don't know what, who the fuck that's supposed to sound like. <laughs> that's Hobbit. Okay. That's Hobbit. Yeah. <laughs> well, that bloke out of Mary Poppins. <laughs> oh yeah, with the Dick, Dick Van Dyke. Van Dyke. Yeah. Yeah. And they've replaced him now with a Puerto Rican, which makes perfect sense. Lin Manuel yeah. Miranda. Let's fix that that historical inaccuracy yeah. by hiring another random American. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Excellent. Let's rewrite history. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the planks came from Robert Louis Stevenson. He wrote that in Treasure Island, which was. Good 80 years after the... And isn't that where the voice came from as well? The first um, film adaptation of Treasure Island, the actor decided to invent the pirate vernacular Yeah, when he played Long John. It makes me wonder about what, from our era, what works of fiction are going to be misconstrued and used to define our lives, our culture right now. Fifty Shades of Grey, I mean, you know, (laughs) defining cultural... It was so sexy back then. (laughs) The wish. (laughs) It was so sexy. I've never seen or read it. I assume it's very sexy. 
So oh. I think, and, then, and a bit dark. And a bit, yeah. Yeah. They were really masochistic in, those <laughs> days, in the early 2000s. <laughs> Huge mistake is there. That Big Bang Theory, that's kind of like defines us for now that, that tells us enough but back to the pirating back to the book you've written a book and it's your first book and it's a belter thanks very much right. I like, that's a great a belter yeah. do you want to stick that I'll just yeah, write yeah, it on the back yeah, of, of been, every copy of, of Be More Pirate in this office let me give, yeah, let me give you a couple of books and a shopping <laughs> it's a belter Actually, yeah. Well, you did a publicity stunt where you, you broke into a bookstore and put it on, on the, under the front window, didn't you? Would you be okay with us breaking into a bookstore and writing our own blurbs on the back of them? Yeah, I'd love that. <laughs> Tell <laughs> us a little bit more about that. And let's use that as a segue into the tones of that the book kind of embodies. Well, someone mentioned to me, someone told me the story the other day. So, you know, Richard Desmond, the, the porn baron and publisher. I know. I, <laughs> I really want to now, though. Not really a hero of mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great poster you have of him, by the way. <laughs> Thanks, thanks. Yeah, the, the posters are a bit excessive, aren't they? But, uh, I was having an anxiety attack when I suddenly realised that I had turned myself into an author and the advice was, don't do that. <laughs> and I was a bit lost and I was sat here trying to uh, write in this very small office and my wife gave me some good advice, which was to not think that uh, liberty, the business I had that I'd let go of, was actually the thing that defined me in this mm. black hole or open sea or whatever the right metaphor is for a book about pirates. Um and I went to the little box that everyone's got in their attic of things that you've kept. Mm. So that was the first record label I started with, uh, you know, to get kids out of the ends. And that was the first big project I did with Liberty. And that was the first band I managed. And that was the first copy of Don't Panic. And wow. bit by bit, I put this kind of journey together yeah. that reminded me, and this is one's purposely blank. And it was just like, actually, I, I, because I've been doing Liberty for so long, I thought that it defined me. Yeah. But of course it, it didn't. And, and the scary bit of what the hell do you do next in the book, one of the bits of advice I've given to entrepreneurs, you know, other than don't worry about trying to spell entrepreneur, um, is always to understand what the scariest thing you can do is and mm -hmm. understand why, whether you know you're not doing it for the right reason or the wrong reason. And for me, that was what then tipped me into doing the book. Mm. The thing that most terrified me. I really wish I knew about this whole tapestry of, of, of memories and leaving a blank for, you know, for your future because I totally would have brought along a picture and just stuck it up with us. <laughs> and just like, here you go. <laughs> That's the answer. You're, you're welcome. This is what, this is what next. Seeing as my wife inspired it and then she came back in the room and was like, what the fuck have you done? <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that she's an interior designer. And yeah, I yeah. don't know if this necessarily uh, screams feng shui, but I like it. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, does, it doesn't at all. And they're not like quite in the right order. And she's yeah. like, what the fuck is this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of them are kind of crooked and stuff. Well, that would drive my wife out. Absolutely nuts. Hey, do you think a pirate had any straight framed pictures on their <laughs> It boat? depends on which way the boat was swelling. So for a couple of minutes as it's like tipping to the left. And I yeah. went I went and did a photo shoot on the Golden Hind, which is the uh, the total reenactment, reenactment? Recreation mm. of Francis Drake's boat. And uh, no, there was definitely no picture. I mean, it's fucking tiny. Yeah, they are surprisingly small when you see them. So small. The fear to think there was like 150 blokes on yeah. that going around for the, the first humans ever to go around the bottom of the South American continent. Mm. Like, fuck. Yeah. Extraordinary what they did and what yeah. they went through, the bravery of it and, and extra levels of bravery because they they absolutely fundamentally believe that there was a, an enormous squid under the water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, like, it's terrifying enough, but they're, yeah, they're really genuinely great. believe in a kraken, even like, fuck. So how, how bad was the alternative that this was the life they chose that, you know, this, well, this is better. I think the alternative was pretty bad. And I think the alternative was also pretty similar to where we stand. So, yeah, I've noticed that you've drawn a lot of comparisons between now, yep. like the, the challenges that, say, a bunch of millennials like Steve and I would face, yep. and then a bunch of rowdy boat boys from a couple hundred years ago. Well, like, you, you, uh, do you want me to write rowdy boat boys in the back? Yeah, 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 yeah. Delta rowdy. It's great. Next book, I'm going to be getting in touch with you. Uh, I mean, I think there's more similarities than you think. So I think they were, you know, you say call yourself the millennials now. I think they were the, they were the millennials of the 18th century. There's no mm. question. The average age of a pirate uh, was in their mid-20s. So kind of guessing roughly where you guys are. 20, mm. 28, I think, is yeah. the exact pirate age. And they looked out and they saw a backdrop of interconnected international conflict where no one really knows who's good or bad anymore. Mm. You know, and the several hundred years of, of war that had led up to it meant that no one, you know, everyone had been involved in some kind of conflict. Mm. The opportunities in front of them disappeared. There was mass redundancy due to automation and a number of different changes. So the landscape had changed. It was a deeply stratified system that really only benefited the, the establishment. So your chances of owning land or a house or anything else had just also disappeared. So the similarities wrote themselves once yeah. I started looking at the, at the history. And because I've spent the last 20 years working with 
young people as they enter adulthood and help them try to find careers and lives. I, I've seen increasingly the frustrations. You know, if I was inheriting the world right now, I'd I'd want a refund. You know, I'm <laughs> furious, really, the, the the stitch up that's that's afoot. And yes, so they said, fuck it, yeah, absolutely, fuck it, and we can probably do better ourselves. And that's that's what this adventure in piracy is about. They rewrote the rules of society. They got into boats, created new systems and societies uh, in response to those which they faced. And they designed them around fairness, equality, self-determination, all the things that are fundamentally important. But that's the bit of the history that's been lost. Well, I don't think lost, I think deliberately written out. Mm. And why is that? What, like why, what was the value of writing that particular part of history out? So mid-1700s, the... You know, you're talking about revolution. Mm. You know, the 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 centre of revolution is across the world. Uh, the revolution in France, the revolution, and you know, the hints of revolution in Russia. The you've got the all the movements here from the levellers back in the 1600s right through. You know, the the revolution of women trying to fight for equal rights. You know, at this point, the colonial governors of across the uh, state of America were getting ready to kick the Brits out. So it was terrifying times for the establishment that were clinging on. And we, we've left the feudal system behind, but we haven't entered democracy. And yet that's what the, the working classes are demanding. You had the levellers and they were crushed in the UK, but that was one of the most successful political movements that, that got to violence. And you had the English Civil War, where again, you know, there was this big question mark of what would the country look like if it wasn't run by a monarch? You had this um, moment, the Putney debates that took place where, where this was discussed. And again, those somehow disappeared from history. Mm. And the next moment uh, that takes place where it really comes to life is the pirates. So they'd rejected this unfairness. They stood against the authority of the crown. Uh, they stood against all the rules of the time. And they fought even the, the nascent uh, multinational corporations. And it was terrifying to the establishment because they actually made it work. Mm. You know, rather than just, you know, hot air, they made it work. This, this group of pirates existed, this community, this society for nearly 40 years. And around the world, if you had the story of the, you know, this is the height of slavery, yet here people of colour are regularly freed and given equal rights. This is the, the times women are perceived to be less capable and less intelligent. And here women have equality of opportunity. Mm. The people who worked in the Navy rarely got paid properly. Uh, and here, and you had slavery, you had, you had children, you know, uh, work. Here everyone got paid fairly. Mm. So in some senses, it's a quasi-socialist utopia. And for the working classes of the world, where the, these ideas are in formation, the growing story that there's a place where they've made it work. Mm. And you can, you can stick your one finger up at the establishment, have the chance to earn a fortune and be treated fairly. I mean, it became very, very potent, seditious. And it, the, the, when they took their ideas of um, um, organisation off the boats and onto land, they actually created a, a republic. And this is a proto-democratic republic, the most representative democracy seen on earth to that point, more so than even Athenian democracy. And it was in the it was in Nassau in the Bahamas, so it's the epicenter of the slave trade, the, the dawn of industrialization and capitalism. The Spanish Empire is on the wane, the British Empire is on the grow, America's getting ready to become America. And right in the middle of all of that, this massive royal fuck you is is growing. So it had to be crushed anti-royal fuck you <laughs> yeah 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 totally so, anti-royal fuck you if you were a working joe on shore and how much of how much of the stories of the pirates and and their revolution would you be hearing about or how much of of the of the mainstream narrative would you be hearing that these guys are just looters and robbers and murderers or fetching a book <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> that is a, a reprint General history of the pirates. A general history of pirates. Oh, how embarrassing they misspelled pirates. <laughs> <laughs> Huge typo. Imagine trying to write, correct a typo in those days. Um, this was one of the, it wasn't the first book. The first book really around it that got major success was uh, about the exploits of Captain Morgan, who was around in the 1680s and 1690s. But this really captures the big, famous uh, stories. This guy, Captain Charles Johnson, writes it. No one really knows who he is. Everyone assumes it's Daniel Defoe because he'd written Robinson Crusoe. Um, and as a, uh, it wasn't clear whether it was a work of fiction or not. And so this be became an absolute massive bestseller. Mm. Like, again and again, reprints. You know, Everybody wanted to get their hands on these stories. This is the dawn of the printing presses and early mass media. Well, not the dawn of them, obviously, but um, you know, dawn of mass media. So these guys are becoming uh, front page news. This guy starts up, you couldn't print unless you had a royal charter at the time. And this one guy starts the pirate press, you know, inspired by the notion of piracy. And everything he printed would be less than a 
penny or whatever the equivalent was to get stories out to the you know the the largely illiterate larger masses so there's all sorts of senses of red, uh, revolution rebellion and, and equality going on in this book it's quite you know assume it's more like down the uh, tabloid end Mm. So they're quite salacious. They're 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 definitely dialed up in the romance and adventure. Mm. The Fifty Shades of Grey of their time, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. But they they report to be from you know also uh, records of account and newspapers and court records. So it has to be taken with a massive pinch of salt. But that was the official report, the first one that just became total mass mass mm. consciousness. And th- this feeds into one of the main points of your book that pirates were very good at storytelling. You mentioned Coca. Everyone credits Coca Cola as the first global brand, really recognizable logo, colors. But way before then, the Jolly Roger was really the most successful logo design in the history of the world. Ever, everywhere. I, yeah. I mean, I think. At- you know, the second most recognized world word in the world is okay. First is God. Third is no, no. First is Coca Cola. Second is okay, and then third is God. Wow, that's your place, God. <laughs> Back at the line, God. <laughs> Coke equals happiness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, friendliness. God, what have you got? Um, so Coca-Cola had to come up with their design because once they'd come up with the magic formula, which mm. they kept a secret, everybody was ripping off Coke. And, you know, branding in those days and licensing was a pretty outlaw business. Mm. So that's why they came up with the bottle because you couldn't fake that. Yeah. So because they had enough money, they came up with this signature bottle and then that's where the swirl comes from to represent the bottle. So Coke's brand came from being inspired by piracy. Mm. And this is one of the points of the book. Pirates constantly push innovation. So Coke ended up having the ubiquitous brand, ironically, because they were being pirated. And then they held this position in brand history. Um, But it's true. Yeah, absolutely. The pirates came up with it first. And the levels of that, I think, are worth looking at. So the international communication format of the time was flags, because we were largely, the world was a maritime uh, situation that was travel and trade and and everything else. Um, And it was communication. Mm. So there was an international, as there still is, language predicated on flags. Uh, and so the pirates didn't, it wasn't just that they had a Jolly Roger cheeky flag. They bastardized the international form of communication with this terrifying black flag. And numerous pirates had different ones. So there's a, Blackbeard's is a dancing skeleton with like a, I think he's dancing around with a glass of rum. You know, it's just like. It's very uh, elaborate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> party boat. This is the party boat. Didn't, didn't he oh, used yeah. to put on like um, special battle makeup and stuff for him yeah. to jump in it's, it's yeah like a, like, well, that's he, part of that brand and storytelling really he that seems to take it, it to the extreme yeah. so uh, the descriptions of him are great in, in there I mean that he just terrified everybody and his reputation was so profound and allegedly he went so far as to light sulfurous fuses at the end of his beards which is a commitment right? oh yeah <laughs> as, as a bearded man <laughs> yeah. and then, that's taken the hipster thing to a whole new level exactly <laughs> But again, this was this was done for branding because there are a couple of historians who will argue that there's no record of Blackbeard ever killing anybody. Yeah. So it, it really underlines the whole storytelling principle. These guys did not have the resources of the Royal Navy. There's no way they should have had the success that they did. Um, they couldn't go and repair or replenish stocks. If they pulled into any port, most ports, they'd be hung on site. So how are they ever going to compete? They competed through this brand. They told these incredible tall tales. And yes, there's a couple of instances of like really extreme violence, rape, torture and and horrors, but pretty much equal to the times. Mm. And then they're uh, elaborated upon. This great big story is created so that you saw the black flag. The message that it's indicating is surrender or die. Mm. They had to fulfill that promise, which meant by and large, most people surrendered. So there is an argument, an economic argument that's made by a, a, a pirate economist that pirates did more to save people's lives, certainly of ordinary sailors' lives than ever they took away which is down to their fantastic ability at storytelling. And if we think of the comparison of Coca-Cola, really, if you push it to now, um, they created the world's first, you know, global viral meme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting when you think about it that way. It's exactly. all done in the means of self-preservation. That was one, in, the, in the start of the book, you, you do great work of abolishing these preconceptions of, of what pirates are, because mostly now, Pirates of the Caribbean and, and Talk Like a Pirate Day and, you know, these kind of yeah. remains are what people associate with, with being a pirate. Yeah, yeah, And it's yeah. either like over-the-top jovial, the opening credits of SpongeBob SquarePants for just a pirate shouting at you, but really they were very practical very progressive, very politically minded. So it seems, so it seems, you know, there's, there's definitely, you know, you can't, the early 1700s public execution was public entertainment 
there was no legal recourse for anybody to have a vote or a say in matters. You know, by and large, everyone was being screwed over. You know, the slave trade, the fucking slave trade was a respectable middle class investment for an ordinary family. I mean, mm. the times were pretty bad. So insert these guys. So, of course, a lot of the stories are, are pretty appalling. And, you know, I'm not scared to talk about some of those. But then, yes, there are these principles. There's no one else in the world saying let's free slaves and make them equal to us. There's no one else saying, yep, we've got you know, female leadership. There's no one else saying, let's have pensions or, or same-sex marriage. Mm. So you've got to look at both sets of facts together with a degree of moral relativism of the time. Mm -hmm. But then there is this very funny thing. Like, why do they then hold this place? And I think one side is explained by our natural love of the underdog and the rebel. Like that appeals to most of us. But yeah, how have they entered into SpongeBob? SquarePants is opening credits. So I mean, have you, that's a bit of a tune, in fairness. <laughs> true. But why Why? Why is it all right for my sister, my, my sister, my daughter, who's five, you know, all of them, pirates, totally commonplace for a children's theme party. You know, she she loves this whole thing of pirates. She, uh, she's only disappointed that I've written a book with no pictures in it. <laughs> fair. I didn't really have an answer. I have that. to agree with her on that yeah. point, though, Sam, to be honest, though. <laughs> but, you know, name another uh, murderous rogue from history that you'd let your children dress up as. Yeah. You know, even if they were, you know, also with some idea like Pablo Escobar, mm. a hero to some, definitely a murderous rogue. Yeah. Try having a children's party around that. <laughs> Can you do that with your daughter? Dress her up a little mustache. <laughs> give her Just a some belly tucker. Some talcum powder on the hands there. Yeah. Don't, ask, don't ask why, I'll tell you later. <laughs> Just like a revolver tucked into the back of her belt. Imagine that invite going around all the other parents. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to go to Scarlet's party. <laughs> Say hello to her little friend. <laughs> exactly what? Okay, everyone pick a cartel, okay? <laughs> We're going to play some games. Yeah, but why? I mean, you know, or you uh, suffragettes party or whatever else it is, you know, uh, West or even the early ANC, you know, you can you can sp split it about the place. You know, we know the story. The the great rule breakers of history become the, the rule remakers and then over time, they become the heroes and legends that we all look to. Mm. And that's a difficult choice to make in the moment that you're there. There is no statue that I've ever seen made to anybody for just following orders. Right. In, in fact, fact, history looks badly on people who are just following orders. Except that's what we're all hardwired to do. Yeah. And this became partly what inspired the book. It feels to me like we live in historic times. You guys have, have got a choice upon you. Are you happy I mean, this doesn't apply everywhere in the world. But the generation I'm talking to, are you happy that you've got almost zero chance of owning a house? But that's what we've been sold is the kind of dream. Mm. And yet 70% of one side of the House of Commons makes a living out of... The landlords, yeah. 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 I mean, are you happy about that? So at what point does that break the moral rules? Right. Not necessarily the legal rules. And then at what point are you happy to follow the rules? Because I think the... The time is upon us where following the rules was probably the wrong thing to do and breaking some rules becomes the right and responsible thing you, to do. You talk about that in the book, the concept of good trouble. Yeah. That causing trouble, but, you know, for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. How do you know when it's it's easy to look back with, with you know, hindsight and, and go, OK, that was that was a good thing to do. Yeah. But when you're in the moment and you're faced with the, the complicated issues we're facing, how do you know what's good trouble and what's just trouble. Well, I mean, I was a little bit glib when I mentioned this last night when we were chatting about the, the conversation we we're going to have, but how do you know that volunteering for ISIS is the wrong thing to do if we're applying the, the make trouble mentality? Sure. Uh, I, I welcome that. And I'm surprised, actually, I'm not challenged on those kind of things more in these conversations. I think it's a hard um, metaphor to get away from. Black flags, beheadings, you know. Mm. Um, and uh, No dancing skeletons drinking rum, though. No. They missed that trick. <laughs> yeah, be, yeah, the ISIS brand could do some bit of an overhaul. Nice beard, nice same beards, yes. Yeah, but, that's um, true. Yeah. But no, I mean, the ISIS, I mean, branding is one of the things ISIS do very, very well, don't they? Uh, your average soldier gets $10 a day and your average camera guy gets $100 a day. Well, They have a minimum of five 24-7 media centers working around the clock around the world. Yeah. Um, you know, they train other terrorist groups in media relations. You know, they're, they're savvy to it and smart to it. And there are a lot of people who will refer to modern pirates, certainly as terrorists. And, you know, again, you go back into it. The the, the suffragettes certainly weren't viewed as lawful people at the time. Yeah. And nor was the ANC and Mandela was named a terrorist. So there is definitely overlap and uh, challenge. So I think it comes down to intention. Mm. I think it comes down to the accountability returning to the individual. How do you know whether you caused the right kind of good trouble? How do you know whether it was the right thing to do? It comes down to you. And I think 
what I'm advocating is practice, practice troublemaking. Mm. I really do. I think I'm suggesting that it should be in the same lexicon as other leadership attributes or, 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 or skills that we try to develop, you know, whether that's you know, a bit of mindfulness down one end, because we know that it helps us balance out the day or, or organizational management or whatever the things are you're trying to get better at. Mm. I think rebellion, standing up to stupid rules, being able to challenge, entering into conflict situations, not having to wait for a policy change or, 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 or just sit around complaining because things are being done stupidly. There is a new skill that's required in the times that we're in, which is being able to break the rules. And then, you know this, you've seen the book very, very quickly, replace bad rules with new ones. And rather than all of the, the, the slow-moving processes of establishing new rules, some of the faster ones, you know, testing them, that's what ultimately a mutiny means. Mm. And I'm really proud of the state that I'm currently in because I'm receiving examples of these coming through thick and fast. And it's slightly terrifying <laughs> yeah exercising a lot of control over people's lives it seems or influence i should say influence, influence yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> i'm desperately trying not to, not to have any responsibility for, this. for five months later uh, sam it hasn't worked out so well and uh, I, sam i bought a boat i got a crew we're all drunk on rum most of the time yeah. i've got scurvy sam help me i'm bringing you the bill <laughs> Yeah, definitely. The ones I've had of people saying, right, I'm going to resign. Fuck it. You know, some amazing, I posted this one on, on, on social media the other day. Wonderful message. It's really short. This is the thing that's tipped me over the edge. I've left my stupid corporate job and I'm starting the social enterprise of my dreams. Wow. I know how hard it is to run a social <laughs> enterprise. Maybe your corporate job was a really well paid one. Yeah, yeah. But there's something, you know, there's something in the, the, the greatest rebellion that I'm advocating is just liberation from the, the, the self-imposed limitations that we all have. You know, and I know that that begins to sound really close to kind of the self-help territory, but I think a lot of this stuff does. It's, mm. It is a personal journey. So mm. if his act of trouble and rebellion is just overcoming the, the limitations you put on yourself, then great. Others have just been about timekeeping. You know, one of my favorites was just this guy and he was totally frustrated, really hardworking journalist and uh, felt it was really daft, really, how his manager is on their back about being at work on a punctual hour. And he clearly works evenings, weekends, he works his own time frame. He was still quite young, so he'd been at university where you're only measured on the output. Mm. It doesn't matter if you get smashed all three weeks and then work really well for a week. And it's up to you. It's the right level of responsibility. Uh, and that suddenly here he was with some older guy threatened by these young or whatever, for whatever reasons, sit at that desk at 9.30, defying all logic. And especially because he had a pastime that he really wanted to do in the morning, which was fermenting. Uh, no way yeah that's amazing really cool I've, right? been, I've been like reading up on fermenting a lot recently it's really interesting he was making really nice pickles and various things and wanted to get that tough stuff done in the morning yeah why not fuck it right yeah you can bring in some kombucha into the office and then everyone will be happy it's kimchi kombucha yeah so uh, his rebellion his act of good trouble was just I mean I don't know how I'd like to check in with him was just simply show up at a time that suits you get your work done and tell you know fuck you yeah and what's going to happen? You deliver the results, you make your kimchi, and if he's if you get sacked for that, then it was the wrong job anyway. Yeah. And so it's a very small scale piece of good trouble. Yeah. And the first act was just to do it one day. And if it didn't feel right and it made you really anxious and unhappy, then don't do it again. If it made you feel powerful, if it made you get in touch with where all of our power comes from, if your boss didn't really have anything to stand on and you made a beautiful kimchi, mm. then you know that it was the right bit of good trouble. It's the dream. Yeah, it is. It is. And others are, you know, extreme, leaving their jobs. I've got another guy, a guy who's, you know, starting a campaign to take on gambling shops on poor, low income high streets. No way. You know, there's, there's a full, and they, you know, the conversation I have with the ones that I get in touch with or that I'm, you know, I feel particularly responsible for. <laughs> the ones who buy boats. You sure? <laughs> Uh, the conversation is always that. It's got to be what's right and appropriate and relevant to them. You'll feel this is the right thing to do and, and manage the amount of risk. It should feel scary. Then you're probably in the right zone. Yeah. And you've got to, you've got to go on a journey of awareness and understanding. That's the thing that surprised me most about the, the pirates is about accountability. Mm. You, I never would have thought as I started on this that this is one of the most accountable groups because once you've broken the rule of society that has been holding you back and then you suggested your new one and then a few other people said, yeah, we'll go for that. Suddenly you are truly responsible. This is the notion of democracy, the true meaning of the word democracy, power that belongs to the people. And then you're going to make it work. Mm. And if it doesn't work, you're going to try something else. So there's, there's such an, for me, sh shock to see this devolution of power into an organic form of democracy. And that's why I've 
you know, I'm still interested in the in the sales and, and what we do, uh, success of the book. But my metric of success has become the the return on rebellion of this whole thing. Return yeah. on rebellion. Yeah. yeah. So w- what can we get to by the end of this year? Let's let's see. And if multiple people are having these kind of rebellions, to to what scale does that enact some kind of movement? And and really tip into this notion that we had 300 years ago that there's a bunch of 20 somethings who aren't following the rules what they've created looks pretty good let's more of us go that way because what's the alternative my friends you know who's who's got the master plan yeah there's one thing you talked about before as you go up the ladder you expect to find someone's like oh you know what's what, what to do and like you have the answers you get there like whether it's a company or even politics you assume Okay, now you're the prime minister or you're the president. I think and recent years have proven that that's not. I mean, you've probably spoken to more interesting people with influence in politics. Have you? Met I think one? the system that we've developed over the last couple of hundred years has just encouraged people to wing it at better levels once you go up. So the system is there, the structures are working, but once you get even up to the top of the high office, you just find out that they're the best at acting as if that they should be there, mm. but they actually don't necessarily have the gumption or the or the ideas to back it up. Yeah. Mm. I think that's right. And then because we then all participate in the facade, so we're going, well, they must be in charge. Yeah, they, they're saying the right things. Yes, I'm in charge. I'll say the right things. Mm. And we've moved so far away from the honesty of, oh, I haven't got a fucking clue. I yeah, don't know, right. what, what should we do? Let's work it all out together. Yeah. Uh, I just wish every so often that when, when, a, when a prime minister is asked a question, like, what should we do about this? He goes, I don't know. Maybe we should figure it out. Mm. <laughs> yeah, let's take a second here. Look at what happened. I mentioned this in the book. Look at what happened with Jeremy Corbyn. Like, totally aside from the politics of the matter. So I was galvanising and working with a bunch of other people and I even put some money into it um, to really seriously look at the formation of a youth party. You know, in the UK, because the the vote and the statistics and the number of constituencies where youth population was so high, turnout has been so low, and the the issues are becoming fragmented in that direction. So we'd begun to look at either uh, seats that you could legitimately go for if you had a half decent turnout of the under thirty voting audience that you could topple quite a quite a few. You know, and and where we were, if you think before the last election, with everybody in total meltdown and you know, UKIP no longer in any kind of structural sense, you could have been looking at a viable route towards having an opposition or having a say in an opposition, which we got very excited. We were meeting regularly about this and we shelved it completely because the the youth swing to Corbyn. Mm-hmm. Um, most for me, completely identified in the grime for Corbyn movement, you know, yeah. the most impossible thing, like the most, in a time of unlikely outcomes, like, mm, yeah. possibly the most unlikely, but it was just because the guy represented or was perceived to represent speaking honestly. Yeah. Yeah. What's the name of the grime artist that started appearing on things like Question Time and uh, This Week? I can't remember his name. He's from East London. Uh, Stormzy? Stormzy? Could it be Stormzy? Stormzy's from Croydon. Good lad. Went to my school. Really? Um, Jamie has been outspoken on it. Jamie did an interview with him. Skepta, Jamie's brother, also spoke out. It was um, Stormzy that spoke out at his Brits showcase calling him... uh, Mayor Pagan, yeah, reminding her about Grenfell. So, but legitimately was. And there was quite a few nights around it, and you know this this interesting coming together of a of a scene that is seen as authentic, you know, at its core, and you know, selling out is the ultimate crime and part of what's kept it so vibrant and creative. And then this seventy year old anachronism, mm-hmm. you know, who comes in speaking about fairness and honesty, and the two things, you know, absolutely surprisingly came together. And do you think it's working out since the, if the, if the momentum and the, um, not the actual movement momentum, but the concept momentum and the actual um, energy that was there to build like a youth movement has been co-opted by Jeremy Corbyn and his, and his movement, is that actually working out or is it just that he has spoken and said the right things to capture that and used it for his own purposes? My suspicion is that they're playing the right strategy at the moment, which is just one of the the least fuck ups. So, you know, he's not routinely I mean he showed up at Glastonbury didn't he but that was right in the heat at the moment um, so he's not out on stage emceeing but he was he was there mm. arm in arm with Stormzy you know there's enough pictures of him I think he's just riding out the good that was there until such time that the battle lines are drawn again and we know that when the next election upon us is upon us which I think is the smart move because mm. I think if he was routinely showing up at cool East End nights it would begin to really yeah, someone like the facade would come off hey wait a minute this is a really old socialist <laughs> guy <laughs> he's wearing the exact same clothes he wore in this video from the 70s yeah. he just has darker hair lighter hair wait a second <laughs> these glow sticks come right off <laughs> this doesn't make any sense yeah. and then he'd have to really justify quite a lot of the claims which were you know 
in some sense is obvious, you know, but talking about quality, fairness, free higher education, you know, of course those are in interesting and important issues. And maybe it would be a good thing if he had to really back those up. And perhaps if there was a synergy, he would then be held to account by that powerful youth group, which would be great. So it looks a bit like, you know, slightly on ice until such time that they need to re-engage, not to be too cynical about it. Um, but nonetheless, something that then brings a group of young people who weren't into mm. the political space, uh, I think is a good thing, ultimately. Mm. Going through all the pirate principles from the book, what do you think are the most valuable principles that can be applied to politics or politicians in general that would yield the most change, the most progressive change? I'm going to preface this by saying I'm really optimistic and positive, and I think the book's optimistic and positive. Mm. Um, I would like to watch the political system in some ways continue to crumble as a failed institution. And I think the interesting, one of the things I think we learned in the book and over time in history is sometimes some things are just so out of date and slow moving that trying to fix them is going to be a waste of time. Mm. And, I, and I'm sad to report that that's kind of how I feel about politics. And I'm not you know, like a Russell Brown thing of don't go and vote. I don't believe that at all. I think we have to participate in it. But a bit like education. What are the chances of education upgrading the curriculum to the kind of skills that are required for young people who will be exiting education in 10 years from now with the rate of change? I mean, with respect to the education system and all the teachers in it, I don't think so. Uh, whereas the most interesting uh, work that I can see being done in participative democracy, you know, let's call it that rather than, than politics, uh, where people are involved in decision making that affects their communities, lives, economies and things around them. It's not in two-party political structures that are so deeply flawed, influenced by media and themselves anachronistic. So would I bet on trying to change this flawed old system, trying to update its OS? No, it's like, you know, when you find yourself in a, a firm, you know, just using massively out-of-date software, I think mm. that's kind of where our political system is. Do you try to upgrade the entire system yeah. or, you know, someone's made an app and it's, it's really good? Yeah, yeah. We're, on, we're on Windows 97. Yeah, exactly. And we're like working in paint and someone's over here with Photoshop. Yeah, um, we're going to need to work together because that's, that's, the, that's the metaphor that I was trying to make. Right. I'll write it on the back of the book. I'll just add it to the <laughs> list. The system the real one is on Windows 95. And no, you can't send a GIF. No, because we don't, <laughs> we're unable to communicate in an appropriate fashion. Uh, and over here, someone's made this really smart app for you know, getting involved. Look at what I, I talk about a number of these things, but look at how Macron formed his um, manifesto. You know, over 300,000 people in a deliberative and participative process. And of mm -hmm. course, he rushed the show with it. And there's not like Trudeau, you know, being very good at manipulating and, and playing a media game, but it's like the Taiwanese, uh, you know, and, and, and large and significant representative parts of your constituent base joining in a policy conversation and helping shape and form policy, that's what the tools and technology that has, has got us to. Mm. Why the fuck are we running away from it? You know, politicians run in fear from Avaz and Change.org rather than think, well, this is the beginning of something interesting. And it is still the beginning. It's totally imperfect. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, platforms has got to be the way this thing moves together rather than continued disappointment with four-year wait for arse all to happen and a bunch of, you know, self-interested media spokespeople not do their job. Mm. So... I'm deeply optimistic and positive because I see nascent, interesting, evolving forms of real politics taking place alongside it. And I hope that the infrastructure s survives and, and gets better. But I wouldn't be that sad to mm. see real politics you know, rest with the real people in, in real communities through an advancement technology. Mm. You mentioned Avas, um, which would be like, a, you know, a modern day pirate. Are there any other modern day pirates in terms of either institutions or groups or individuals yep. that may be occupying the political space in particular that you have there your eye on pirate parties in scandinavia for a while there in the 2000s yeah. wasn't there no they're still going and they've popped up popped up around the world in a couple of places steve mentioned this before to me. these are literal pirate they called up their pirate parties yeah. pirate, pirate literal, pirate. literal yeah. pirate parties not in the metaphorical sense no. these are this is the pirate party of iceland and sweden i believe Wow. It was inspired partly around uh, information, data and privacy. So it's kind of pirate in a in, in, in very digital way and the yeah. same kind of generation that spawned uh, WikiLeaks and a lot of the brains that then came back, you know, that first came up with the ideas around Bitcoin and blockchain and then and then returned with it. So I think that's a really interesting and important movement. Um, I would expand the pirate scope. I think the, the pirates I'm talking about aren't there unless there is fairness and a sense of equality and a fight for it and and as well as innovation and change um yeah i think there's there's a few i think the i think the participative democracy movement is really interesting and it's predominantly australia canada 
where there's been large scale examples of it, but where you have hundreds of thousands of people involved in policy setting and budget setting. I mean, that's really interesting, I think. And that's taken place to a degree in Mexico City and right amidst one of the most corrupt, um, sadly, and sadly because of the Mexican political system's corruption that sits against the perfectly worded, the most perfectly worded constitution. Um, but here we go, Mexico City, rife with challenges, now got some localised budget setting going on. So those to me feel like the places that you can look to. Um, Pedro actually is a young uh, guy, the youngest politician to enter the Senate in Mexico, 25, and he's done all of his fundraising with a $200 cap on it so that he can't be bought. You know, yeah. he did that via Facebook. Yeah. So it's like, there we go, you know, smart, adaptive use of technology. The, the Sunflower Revolution I talk about in the book, they did this clever trick. They forked the government system because the government had, was returning to a worrying top-down message. So they set up the same looking URL as the one that you usually go to. So it's like, imagine gov.org, but gov.org or something you know, so one one letter changed so people were bought into it it looked exactly the same but it said you know, how would you feel about our budget where would you spend it and mm. once they'd had over 100,000 people reset how the budget could be spent they realised they had really good ideas that people mm. were going to back and believe in and lo and behold one of the, the young people that led that revolution is now the digital minister and uh, Mexico has a digital minister this is Thailand so the, oh, Thailand, the, sorry, excuse the, the me. digital revolution was in Taiwan sorry and so Taiwan. she she uh, she's transgender so she's now the digital wow. minister and time has gone to number one in terms of digital transparency in the world that's amazing that's incredible I had no idea about that totally amazing yeah. and those are the opportunities that, are, that they're already out there loads of them so I think Avaz and Change are kind of forerunners I think Mia Rio in, in Brazil so where young people have really fucked over and Mia Rio once it hit I can't remember what the critical mass was but heading towards a million young people um, it's just an online platform, essentially, but having a deliberative discussion about the challenges the city faces, uh, it became such a scale that then the mayor had to listen. Yeah. And then they worked it so carefully. And from some uh, conversations I've had, we're going to see the, the, the Brazilian uh, election that's coming close. The percentage who are now saying they're willing to vote for a, a leader of under 30, under 30 or under 40, but radically young, and you've got one or two candidates who would f fill that, you might see the youngest political leader we've got of a country because they're so fucked off. So to me, there's no shortage of political pirates. You know, we actually, Ireland was lucky enough. You heard about the recent um, referendum course. on the abortion yeah, um, rights. They decided to, because the political classes were utterly terrified of the issue, they wouldn't touch it. They created a citizens assembly where 100 people were selected randomly from the voting register to come together and deliberate about what to do about this. And they were, they had contributions from experts. It went over a weekend. And at the end, they proposed removing from the constitution the issue of abortion at all and then legislating for something that was going to be far more radical and liberal than, than the political classes could ever think was right. possible. And right. then when it turned out that we had the referendum, it was entirely passed by like a two thirds majority. Yeah. And it turned out that the people that we were trusting to actually run our political system had no idea yeah. about, about what was actually, what was actually wanted by the people they were supposed to be governed. And that's what all the journalists and the establishment um, commentators were saying. We were relying too much on listening to the politicians to, to get feedback as to what the people of Ireland think when it turns out that they had no clue. So this is, so that's their example of the ones I gave. That, that, I think that's exactly it. The hundred people in this instance that they're the pirates of the of the policies that I was talking about, the mm. pirate steps. So therefore you've broken the rule, you've rewritten the rule, there's a mutiny going on because now we're following those guys. It's the reorganization of, of power rather than vested interests arguing it out in a media friendly way. Um, and then you've forced a way for fairness to be there. So those are exactly the pirate stages of change that I, I, I talk about. And this moment of the so that is a great example of deliberative democracy. And I would now I have to count that where I have with Australia and Toronto mm. and these other places. It's not to say there wasn't detractors. The the no campaign, the the, the anti-abortion people still said, that, oh, it was rigged. You got in the wrong experts and all that. But I mean, you're going to have naysayers and detractors no matter what. It's a policy issue with two sides. So, Of course you are. But it feels like part of the upgrade that's missing. I mean, that's and that's it. Nothing gets to be perfect. But it, it, what other area of life would we accept such a flawed delivery service than the one we get in, in politics. Yeah. Like it's the lot. Why is it the last place that the, the benefits of technological advancement have touched? 
Yeah. You know, everything else, the, the, the choice, the ability to, to speak back, have some control, the citizenship that's so afforded in many other areas, the last one that it gets near is, is that. So I think that whilst that's not a technology solution, you can see some of the, the technological approach, you know, or certainly the, the kind of culture of it. Like, let's test this and, you know, push it through a, you know, almost a sprint, you know, get a group of people and work on it and, and you step through it. And it can be fumbled as well. I guess you could say that the Brexit... Um decision was a democratic people process because it was a referendum of the entire electorate. But in comparison to what we did with the abortion referendum, you guys woke up the night before an exam after being shit faced drunk and then did a line of coke and went in and actually went into the wrong exam because you basically just allowed the same media and political heads to argue about this for a couple of weeks beforehand. Whereas what Ireland and these other deliberative processes did was actually think about it, approach it properly and come out with a good solution that actually works. Yeah. So totally. And, and that's the thing that is not said enough about the Brexit uh, referendum. So many vested interests made their vested case. And that was what then got kind of discussed badly. And we just watched a really appalling. I mean, remember what happened in the weeks before an appalling demonstration of a grown up conversation. Like that was just absent. Um, totally absent. It was, it, was an, it was an argument about who should lead the Conservative Party, not about the future. Yeah well-being of a nation of 66 million people. Exactly. And you know, totally removed from the right thing, the wrong thing, how anyone voted or whatever. We should make decisions based on informed trouble. conversation, you know, at least, mm. at least, and, and, and robust evidence. And, and, and if, so I feel so wedded to that, even if the outcome of that was the, the opposite to the one I wanted, I'd still be fine with it because yeah. we, 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 we got to move to a place where we're making our decisions on that, not on, media informed bullshit and agendas behind it that's the kind of politics that needs to go yeah. mm. more podcasts less uh, less question time <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's a good uh, really good metaphor for it and after I can't remember I did my first so David Over who's the head of publicity in my my imprint has said from the from the outset right podcast strategy here's, here's all the podcasts we should be speaking to these are really great got me you know a whole list of podcasts that I hadn't listened to before and and everyone, well, a lot of people are a bit wary of it because I think there's, there can be quite a traditional mindset. Let's mm. get a review in the Telegraph and whatever else. So to date, even though we've had bestseller, somehow we've had bestseller status on Amazon for five weeks and a week before we launched. Congratulations. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> uh, not one single newspaper review. Wow. Not really? one. Nope. And so, but we have done several. Have you been approached by any of the radio stations or TV stations or anything like that to appear like as a talking head or? Um, one or two, but it hasn't yeah. come off. No, yeah. Not the big things. Yeah. Nope. Um, but so the podcast strategy has been absolutely where we've been. Mm. And, what, and I did the classic bit of media training at the beginning and you did the media training. Here's what it'll be like on Radio 4. Here's what it'll be like in the Metro. Here's, and it was that absolute, the fast that we're all entered into, mm. that bollocks. And then one of those moments when you realise um, the fallacy that we're all living in. When I did my first ever media interview, when I was you know growing up through Liberty and which is when I became a social enterprise ambassador. And we did media training. And basically the line is, you're asked a bunch of questions, ignore those, Say your point in 60 seconds. Then you'll be challenged by the journalist to answer their question. You bridge by dodging that and get back to the point that you want to make. Same thing happens again. You repeat your point a third time in a different way. By that point, the audience have understood because you've said your point three times. And thank you and goodbye. Oh, my God. And that was absolutely the structure. And so I've done media training two or three times in my life. And that's how people are media trained. That explains so much. <laughs> totally. So now you listen. And it's one of those, one of those moments that yeah. you're expecting to meet the grown-ups. And actually, you just meet a bunch of people who are playing a game. Fucking hell. So I stopped listening to the news around that time. And we came out of one the podcast and I just thought, right, that's it. I don't I don't want to do another interview like that ever again. I don't here we get to have a really interesting conversation. I'm learning stuff from you. We get to go around I have never talked about these topics on any of the other podcasts I do. Mm -hmm. It's a good half hour or something conversation. It's really honest. The people who want to listen to it get something deep and meaningful. Yeah. Versus and I've done Radio Four and I've done T V and I've done Sky News and other things. It's never got any depth to it. It is absolutely agenda-driven mm. and a game. Mm. So, yes, that <laughs> yeah. would seem to be the answer. And I think, and that was one of the mostly lit guys that switched me onto this thought, there is a clear similarity, therefore, in podcast culture and why it's being so vibrant and growing and, and pirate radio in its time. Mm. Pirate radio came to be because of the monopoly of the BBC and in the midst of the 60s when there was, you know, good music and fun to be had, mm two channels churning out gardening <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly bbc fodder yeah 
And so some smart people got on a boat and brought it just outside of legal waters, just close enough to broadcast, and pretty soon had a third of the population. Yeah. And the BBC crushed them, you know, charged them all, threatened to send them to prison, and then launched a couple of other channels that played normal music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hired those DJs. Exactly. Yeah. And hired yeah. the DJs, yeah, totally. Uh, and so that honesty, that vibrancy, you know, and then was completely seen as part of radio has continued to, to champion creativity. So I think there's, I think the podcast movement of the of the now is the next wave of piracy on air. Mm. So I guess the, the Sam pirate mentality isn't necessarily that we should burn and pillage and destroy everything that's around us, but at least challenge it to a point that then the, the, the mainstream powers have to adapt and get better. Yeah, and I think that's it. And there's a, I think there's a, there's a useful relationship to understand that pirates drive innovation by challenging market failure. And they do that because they don't follow the same set of rules. And in so doing, they can invent new rules. And that we should begin to understand is a positive in the flawed times that we're in when new rules are required. And that's why the central message of all this is practice rule breaking. Excellent. I think that's a wonderful note to end on. Where can people get the book? Uh, you can buy it at bemorepirate.com. Yeah, I would recommend that over Amazon. It seems more like more of a pirate thing to do. You can get a lot more cardboard if you buy it from Amazon. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's true. And look, under here, I've been, I've been wrapping... It just made, it makes me weep when people actually buy my book. <laughs> and so you, people that buy them from me... There's I, a wax seal. Yeah, I sit, oh, that's gorgeous. I sit at the kitchen table. <laughs> I wrap it all up like that. A little uh, skull and crossbones wrapping paper. Yeah, 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 that is gorgeous. That hilarious? And I've gone through the absolute arsehake of becoming registered, because I didn't realise, I thought all books were books, right? Book sales. Mm. Um but books that I sell on my website, the first ones didn't get recorded onto the... Oh, the bestseller lists. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, I haven't sold millions, right? Um, so now I've registered as an independent bookseller. So oh, wow. I have the, Re oh. the, the Rebel Bookshop is on my website and you can see all of the bibliography of pirate research books if you want to pick up some of those as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. If you can't actually go to Sam's office and have them place them on your lap, then this is another way to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I must say, the, the book cover, I work as a graphic designer and the book Please. cover is phenomenal. That's like, I, I would love to know how you actually managed to get that made because there's nothing on the front. There's just a graphic on the front of it and a Steve Jobs quote. And like that breaks every rule of like book, book publishing and graphic design and book publishing. So it was clear to me and my background is in marketing and uh, branding um, to make a difference. Mm. And so I always knew that the cover was the flag of the book, right? And we had to do this. And so in my, even in my contract, I argued for, for mutuality and usually an author wouldn't get that. And I think because I was such an outsider that mm. they let me get away with some they're clauses. Like, yeah, sure, what are we going to lose? Yeah, yeah. Like, what? Um, and then really luckily, I my team at Penguin just were great and they were really up for doing things differently so they mm. championed it. And then when we met the creative team, they're led by a guy called John Hamilton who's a little, you know, anchor tattoos and just bearded <laughs> and like, brilliant! <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then there's a guy called Chris Bentham and that one is the original one. Yeah. And, and recently, because it has, it has been really popular and made quite a quite an impact uh, and so he was asked for the, the original digital file when to make a blow up of a poster and he's like it's not digital I, I sprayed it wow so he actually just you know it goes right against all sorts of yeah. rules yeah oh my god so he just sprayed it himself to, to start the whole process um, and because I, I gave them license let's do things differently yeah and so it, it speaks to the, the Amazon world where most books are sold because it's a different size. It looks a bit yeah, thumbnail. Even the colour and everything. It speaks yeah. to the real world because you have to turn it around and mm. touch it and explore it to get all of the detail of mm. it. Um, it speaks to who I am. You know, my name is not on the front, not on the side. It's at the back and, yeah. and in the small. Let's get everything else on and out there. And then this lovely thing happened. It was Clarissa who started it, this notion of sticking the book in front of her face. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yeah. yeah scary kind of malevolent uh, I did a talk at I did a conference and there was about 150 people in the audience and they'd all been bought a book and I got the, took a picture from the stage of them all doing it and actually when they get that many people it's <sighs> terrifying yeah of course <laughs> like, oh, oh, I regret this <laughs> <laughs> I'm not coming down <laughs> so that was why to, you know, you, I think the first question that you asked which we didn't answer um, <laughs> we're about going in the shops and, and causing a bit of trouble mm. um, it feels it feels obliged on me if everyone who's joined in this journey and this we've only here and had the success we have because so many people have supported us so we haven't gone down the traditional media route we've spent the time with people like you who are mm. making this movement of podcasts we didn't do a typical cover you know we broke all the rules of the cover so much so that still no one's actually told me off about the steve jobs quote uh, <laughs> and i felt i was obliged to do the same thing you know go and shake up some of the shops a little bit yeah and obviously i took it too far 
Do you want to do the window? Do you want? Do we talk about that? Do you want to talk about? No, we skipped it actually. Yeah, yeah. This is fucking brilliant. What you did? I just because I had some of the advanced copies of the books, and at first I was just going into Waterstones to imagine what it's going to be like. Because mm. I'm naive, right? So I thought, you know, you get a book out and then There'll be a shelf. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Careful, cut out of you. Exactly. Doing some signings, windows, all that. So that doesn't happen. No. Uh, oh. Afraid to say. Can you guess what the average? volume of books number of books at Waterstones will order for a first order from a new author a uh, couple hundred yeah I'd say like a couple hundred two hundred yeah. per store per store mm -hmm. like in London yeah. high street yeah. Yeah. still a couple yeah. hundred yeah one what one 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 book one book what <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make any sense <laughs> no, no it's, I mean especially not if you've just been a fucking year writing it yeah like, what? what do you mean one book but one that means book. that you could end up just oh, I, I would love to go through the process of buying my own book, and then you've sold out the book in in Oxford Circus Waterstone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, straight straight to the maths, right? It doesn't make any sense because yeah. then does that mean you've sold out, or does that mean you've only sold one? Because that's a big spectrum of good and bad, yeah. <laughs> and they're both true. <laughs> At least by two, <laughs> you know, you might find something out. Fifty percent uh, sales already on my first day. <laughs> yeah, or it's done really badly, uh, and I just got chatting to some. Got some of the guys in the stores about you, know, and and that helped inform the cover before the cover was signed off, just to try and learn. I'm really interested. I'm doing something new, and so I felt like I had a bit of license of bookstores, and I'd been in a few, and it's beginning to get a bit weird. <laughs> Where's that author guy? And then it comes out. He claims to be an author, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, he doesn't seem to know anything. And so I had one book on a business section, you know, tucked far away in the wrong place, and there I am looking at you know people who I consider to be my peers, books that I look up to and respect, but you know not as good as mine <laughs> so I just started laying some of mine <laughs> out in the right places so there's Jordan Peterson great book definitely belongs over that Seth Godin you know guy I really respect but you know all you need to read is the back cover of those ones so pop it over that one um, and a few more and then because I was in Waterstones and I could see the window I just thought ooh <laughs> I could probably get a few in there. <laughs> but these are my own books because Waterstones yeah. only has one. I got chased down the road, rugby tackled by a security because they just assumed that I was, must but be... But I'm not stealing, I'm giving you yeah, books. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm, I wrote this book, I wrote this book. Sure you did, buddy. We get this every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. There was, there was a, rugby tackled this big, fat, hairy guy with a grey beard claimed he wrote Game of Thrones. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, get out of here. But then the other thing I learned was, um, so these guys eventually came around, we had a bit of a laugh and then, you know, as a result... The, the store manager put the books uh, he then stole them from me um, on the table and I signed them and he put a little sticker on the front and said signed I said oh nice. result. and he said a signed book is a sold book uh -huh. I said, well, is that the truth um, I said yeah partly it turns out because you can't return a signed one uh -huh. So now I carry around a Sharpie with me if I'm passing a bookshop, Just pop in. Sign everything. <laughs> and the little sticker. Yeah, 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 exactly. Sometimes with permission. <laughs> Sometimes not. Sometimes not. But it turns out now I know what to say. You go in and say, hello, I'm the author of X book. You've got it tucked away over there. Would you like to sign a copy? It's kind of hard to say no to yeah. that, right? Do you know what? Have you know, is there any copies in Dublin yet? I hope so. There should be. I actually just gonna... one in Waterstones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to sign it on your behalf and just put the sticker on and pretend that you did it. Like, so, oh, wow, there Sam was here. We didn't even know. <laughs> Excellent. Please do that. He's got region specific signatures <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. Is that a pirate thing? I assume it is. Right. Slightly more Irish looking signature. <laughs> well, if it means you can't read it, then yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I think that the book cover, everything we talked about is a brilliant example of you living this whole pirate lifestyle and, and, and bring it forward in a positive way. I'm, I'm trying I'm to. really glad I didn't get Seasec recording this interview on his boat. <laughs> this is, yeah, this, <laughs> yeah. Is, this is cool. All this rum in the coffee as well. He's really committing to it. I am. I'm going to commit to the, to the, to the, to the end of the year. Mm. That's what I've said. So I'm trying to make a living through different means and public speaking or whatever else so that I can back the, I can't tell you how humbled I am and proud of some of the messages that I've received and some of the, the shit people are trying to cause mm. and that this line that I hear that this has spoken to me yeah you know this spoke to me this spoke to a part of me and I just think fucking hell you know aren't I lucky that I've, I've tapped into a, a moment in a zeitgeist and I've been able to find an honest enough voice of my own feeling took the time to develop this with the people that I was trying to speak to and I feel obliged now to meet that you can't have, you know, have many hundred people I've had right to bother to write to me mm. and say this spoke to me and, and to not think that there's a moment in time. And I've been 
uh, guilty as a someone running a marketing agency of using the word movement far too many times and allowing clients to say, yeah, we're going to, and I've, you know, sold someone, we're going to create you a movement. So we're not. <laughs> we're going to sell some biscuits. Exactly. Make your social media campaign for your biscuits. Um, and, but I've studied movements, obviously, I understand it. And here I am looking at something. There is a common problem. There's a group of people who are frustrated and the solution isn't some great master plan that I've got. It's just embodied in, in action and rule breaking. And yeah. something that I've created has hit a nerve. And so I feel duty bound to fan those fires and see what happens with it. Yeah, I think it's I think it's working and I can't wait to see where it goes. Yeah, that's what I'm going to try. And that's the one thing I'm, I'm missing. How do I capture and then re-showcase that? So at the moment, really, I'm just posting a lot of the stuff on social media. So yeah. I want to find a better way. And that's why I was asking the podcast questions, yeah. a better way of letting those who are starting their rebellions become more inspiration to the others. Because if this is going to spread, right, it can't just be me. Yeah. It's got to be um, some of the, you know, it's got to be the kimchi guy or it's got to be the, <laughs> yeah. the, the guy taking on the betting shops, you know, starting to tell their stories and what are the things that they did that did work and what didn't work. Mm. That's how I think we're going to make this thing spread. So that's what I'm going to dedicate at least the rest of the year to and take a risk. And if that kicks off, then maybe that's my new job. Yeah, officially. Well, whatever form it takes, we'll be listening, watching, reading. Yeah, I encourage listeners to buy the book and to keep following the website and, and Twitter yeah. to see what's going on. Be more pirate on every count. There we go. Sam, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This Pleasure. has been brilliant. This thank has been, you, gents. Really, yeah. really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Um, Sarah, how do pirates sign off things? <laughs> what's well, like a piratey way of signing off? Not a har. <laughs> but but that's how we're going to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was just our way of tricking you into saying yeah, har. Yeah. <laughs> Boo! It's us again. Boo! <laughs> we're, we're back. It's almost like we never left. Yeah. What did you What did you think of that chat, Steve? That was fantastic. I yeah. had no idea that pirates were so progressive, and that we could learn so much. And you know what would be helpful if there was only if if Sam had written down all these things into into like some sort of a tome or or a pamphlet mm. or or a doohickey mm. something that we could get. So you're you right, know? a doohickey. A doohickey is what they're called. Doohickey, a, a thingamajig. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but uh, Steve, such a doohickey would be so expensive. Yeah, but luckily he has a book. <laughs> Which isn't expensive today. <laughs> yeah, for today only 99p on Kindle, if you got yourself a Kindle. Did I tell you I stood on another Kindle? Did I tell I stood, this is the third Kindle I've stood on and broke. It's just, you just don't like Kindles. I mean, I just, we, I'm so fucking really, I'm so careless on my Kindles. You have to give up on I should the not be allowed have, I should not be allowed to have a Kindle. If you'll remember our chat with Ed and the environmentalism episode, you're killing the planet with your feet. Inconsiderate feet. Oh my God. I mean, anyway. stepping on the planet. Anyway, yeah, completely off topic. Yeah, check out the book. It's a belter. Uh, follow Sam on social media. He's always tweeting out great stuff. And uh, yeah, check it out. It's a good one. And follow us on Twitter while you're at it. Oh, and uh, give us a review on iTunes, please. Give us preferably a good one. Preferably. Five yards. Oh, everyone's going to downvote us after that one. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs>